I'd love to to hear from you why you're different because I've I've learned that your style of watchmaking is completely different to what everyone else does. Hi guys, I'm Adrian and welcome to the third episode of the Bark and Jack podcast. If you're new to Bark and Jack, I just drink coffee, talk about watches and I kind of document my journey through exploring watches and watch related things. So if you like that sort of stuff, do hit subscribe. And also if you like NATO straps, and we do have some premium NATO straps that are built to our specifications. So jump over to barkandjack.shop to check out those NATO straps and we ship worldwide. Back in October 2018, I went to a clock event at Bonham's Auction House in London, and Roger Smith was there to, to give a, a, a talk. Roger, the Roger Smith, uh, the renowned watchmaker Roger Smith, who's carrying on the, the kind of journey and legacy that uh, George Daniels created. The clocks there were absolutely incredible. They kind of uh, showcased the evolution of timekeeping, right, right from really quite crude sundials uh, and then all the way through to really quite complex um, clocks that just displayed uh, time in loads of different formats. It's ab absolutely awesome to see. Anyway, Chris from the Time for a Point podcast was there, and I know Chris, and he introduced me to Roger Smith because he had already met Roger Smith before. And I'm, I'm pretty awkward in social interactions. Uh, but luckily with us watch people, uh, we kind of have that go-to topic to talk about, watches. And so naturally I spoke to Roger Smith about watches. Awkwardly, I didn't decide to talk about the Roger Smith watch that was on his wrist. He was actually double wristing that day, and I decided to talk to him about his Rolex Explorer. That was kind of the first awkward thing that, that I did. Um, and then I showed him that I had a similar watch, a similar Rolex Explorer. He said, oh, look, the same watch. And I stupidly corrected him. I mean, they aren't the same watch because his is the double one four two seven zero, the slightly newer version, and mine is the previous version, the one four two seven zero. I could have stopped there, but for some reason, I went even deeper and I started to explain the difference between the one four two seven zero and the double one four two seven zero. It was completely weird and completely unnecessary. And and you know when you hear people say things to try and prove their knowledge, they're kind of dropping facts and little knowledge bombs to try and prove that they know something. Uh, but it's completely unnecessary and these come across as a, a bit of a dick. Well, that was me. Luckily, regardless, Roger actually ended up inviting me to his workshop on the Isle of Man. And of course, I accepted that invitation. And in February this year, 2019, I went over to the Isle of Man and visited Roger Smith. It was my first kind of big Bark and Jack expedition. And it was really great fun to actually go off and do that. He gave me a massive tour of his workshop, kind of demonstrated quite a few processes, uh, went quite deep into the design ideas that he has around watches and, and the challenges that he comes across when it comes to building a, a complex watch. Uh, and then we sat down and we, we had a chat. You're gonna have to excuse the background noise because we were in a working workshop and if you want to see, this is just going to be a video of me and him chatting. If you want to see the fully produced videos that I created, I created three videos about my trip um, visiting Roger. Um, I'll put links in the description, but also you can just search YouTube Bark and Jack Roger Smith and they will come up with the videos. Now let's get into the chat with Roger Smith. How do you describe what you do? Um, yeah, so, well, I suppose it, it is a difference. And um, so, my approach to watchmaking, well, we call it the Daniels method. And that was, um, 
an approach which George started, I think, by, I mean, with no real intention right. in the 1960s, uh, when he had ideas for the advancement of the mechanical timekeeper. Um, he, he obviously um, knew how to design watches, but um, he ended up having to make them himself because there was no industry around to support him. So right. um, quite by chance, he created this un unusual approach where one man will design and make a complete watch from start to finish. And he'll make, you know, to all intents and purposes, every single component within the watch. And um, this was an, uh, an idea that um, it just grabbed me, you know, from my very first meeting with George as a 17, 18 year old, I can't remember when, um, this idea that one man can sit down and do that. And that's what really sparked it off for me. And that's what we're doing today. Awesome. And and what what was that journey for you to, why did you approach George as, as a 17, 18 year old? Well, uh, actually he came to the college that I was studying at. Right, and so you'd already started training as a Yes, yeah, so I was training as a repairer. Uh, restorer, I didn't know what then and whether it was going to be watches or clocks. And um, in the second year, George visited the students, and that was my first knowledge of George and the fact that he was a guy making individual handmade watches. Cool. And so then you approached him, and what did you, did you want to work for him or did you just want to find out more about him? So I, um, I joined, uh, I went to, I, I was, I was, I'd already left the college and um, I was working for a trade repairs, you know, repairing new watches. And I was just beginning to think that perhaps this wasn't the route I wanted to <laughs> go down, repairing right. modern watches. And, uh, you know, I always remembered George's uh, visit to the workshops, the, the college that I was studying at. And in the evening, he gave this incredible lecture on his life's work into exploring the uh, modern, well, sorry, no, his, his approach to watchmaking and his escapement designs and so on, and the developments of the escapements through to the coaxial escapements. And that just grabbed me and um, I was hooked. And um, so I thought I'd write to George to ask if he'd apprentice me and or give me some advice or anything any help he could give me to get me into this very tiny you know very focused world of watchmaking brilliant did you respond straight away um i think yeah i think within a few weeks got a letter back and um said that he didn't employ people <laughs> uh, but nevertheless he invited me to the isle of man and he took me for a tour around his workshops and um basically said if you want to make watches you just have to start yourself you know nobody can teach you how to make watches because it's so involved so complex especially at his level um that he said go away and begin making a watch and that's wow. what i did that's brilliant yeah and now now you are in your new workshop here we are <laughs> yeah many years later <laughs> many years later yeah although I've, I've started to get a grasp now having seen your workshop and the extent at which you go working on components that no one other than you and your chaps will see. Mm. What is your motivation behind the watches that you make? Well, what would, what are you striving for with your watches? Is it reliability? Is it um, to make the most complex watch? Is it to make 
the most beautiful watch. What is it? it? I think I think it's everything. I mean, I think um, as I say, I was brought up in this you know very unusual approach to watchmaking where you focus on absolutely every single aspect of a watch. So whether that's the case, the dial, the hands, every single screw, spring, lever, throughout the whole watch, you are 100% focused on that tiny, tiny component. And um, I think I think it is just this attention to detail. And, you know, when I'm designing a watch, as I say, I'm not just designing a nice looking watch. It has to be a very mechanically efficient watch. Um, I've done a lot of work with the coaxial escapement and uh, we're seeing extraordinary results with that. And it's, it's, it's focusing on the whole watch. You know, it's, it's a complete package as far as I can see. And um, I think that's a sort of driving force of what I'm trying to do really. Awesome. You mentioned coaxial escapement there. Yes. Um, I think that's quite, could you explain in a very simple term what how that's different to a normal escapement yes yeah, so the so the lever escapement is uh, i mean the big problem with it is that you have um you have a tooth which um hits the jewel and is locked there and then the jewel moves out the tooth slides then begins to slide down this inclined face and as it slides down this inclined face it imparts energy through to the balance wheel, through a right. lever, through to the balance wheel to maintain its oscillation. And it's this sliding action which requires lubrication. Okay. So in the lever escapement, um, this sliding action requires lubrication. As the oil deteriorates, it becomes harder for the tooth to slide down that jewel, and then it slows the watch. And sure. eventually, you know, it may stop the watch because it just gums up so your watch will go back for a service because this oil has deteriorated mm -hmm. and it'll need refreshing, removing and refreshing. In the coaxial escapement, the power is delivered by simply a tooth hitting a jewel and just pushing it away. So right. it's uh, just very much a pushing action. There's minimal sliding there as the tooth slides off the jewel, but because it's in the direction of travel, it's negligible. Mm -hmm. And although we do use lubrication in our escapements just to, um, if you like, um, sort of soften the surfaces, you know, because they can become very dry with modern cleaning processes. So um, it, it's due to this pushing action that we um, don't really, the escapement doesn't rely on lubrication. And um, it's that which is a great advantage to the coaxial. And so you have a, longer degree of accuracy um, before the watch will ever need a service. And um, it's so that in, in theory, your watch will maintain a high degree of timekeeping for a far longer period than that of the Libra escapement. Brilliant. And that leads nicely onto one of my questions about your, uh, um, your specifications. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so your specifications are a bit more geeky a bit more detailed than, oh, yes, yeah. than uh, yeah. the, the rest of the watch world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of your points, um, and, and these I think uh, are repeated on all of your series of, of watches. Yes. Your four series plus your open case. Yes, open, open dial, dial. Yeah, yes. Um, and that's probably because you mentioned earlier, you have one caliber. 
So basically, and we, everything else is built on top. Yeah, I mean, so e each watch is an individual watch in its own right. So the series fives, sorry, the series one through to five, the fives now the open down. Um, so we use the same trainer wheels, same barrel trainer wheels, handset mechanism, winding work in each watch, and escapement obviously in each watch. But the base plates are all different. Right. So the base plate for the Series 1 is its own individual uh, plate, as is every single other watch in the range. And, and I don't like these sort of bolt-on complications, which you I have seen you know, at times over the years. For me, it's all about creating a completely individual bespoke watch. And, so my description of it being one calibre of little bits put on top isn't, isn't quite right. Not quite right, <laughs> Not no, quite right. no. But as I say, the, the core timekeeping element components yeah. are the same. They're just all in different individual frameworks. Yeah, no, that makes, yeah. It makes complete yeah. sense. So some of these questions might, might be a bit um, Mickey Mouse, but my, my understanding and knowledge of the inner workings of a watch are minimal. Okay. <laughs> So you've got one of your specific specifications is single wheel version of the Daniels coaxial escapement. Yeah. So you've taken, I assume, what um, George, da George Daniels created. Yes. And simplified it by single wheel. Yeah. So so basically, um, so in the very first watches that I started making, the wrist watches, uh, with, which contain the coaxial, this was back in two thousand six. I fitted those with the um, sort of three-tier sort of system, which is basically a standard pinion. Then you have a lower wheel and an upper wheel, and that comprises the whole escape wheel. And um, the problem that we were having—I mean, I wasn't aware of this in the early days—but was basically it's very difficult to to make sure that the teeth of your lower wheel were a hundred percent concentric with the teeth of your upper wheel. Right. Because by the time you've made the two wheels and then mounted on the arbor, things move, you know. And the coaxial is very accuracy sensitive, has to be bang on. So, um, and I was noticing that, um, you know, in practice as well, you know, each watch was slightly different because of this. And we were able to, t it was taking different rates of time to achieve a good rate of timekeeping. You know, there's no consistency. So I was looking at ways of smoothing that out. And then I came upon the idea of creating the single wheel. So basically, um, we machine the whole wheel in one operation. So that means that we can guarantee that the concentricity of the lower teeth are the same as the upper teeth. But not only that, we can now guarantee that the, we can fix the angular orientation of the two sets of teeth perfectly to each other and again that was a difficulty in the early versions right. we had to twist the upper wheel round and that caused difficulties in maintaining the concentricity and angular orientation so creating that wheel propelled the escapement forward hugely in terms of our ability to achieve a high rate of timekeeping far quicker than we were doing Right. It's still a long process, mm -hmm. but nevertheless, it's improved it. So I thought, well, this is interesting. We were seeing results straight away. And then from that stage, um, I started to look at the lightness of the components. And I started to lighten the lever. 
and again there were benefits there and we were seeing the benefits again in speeding up the rating process but gradually I think is after I lightened came up with a new design for lightening the single wheel suddenly I we saw a dramatic change in in, in performance right and it's at that point that things started to move forward you know quite you know um impressively I suppose you know in terms of the changes to the movements so again it speeded up our ability to rate the watches uh, the actual rate improved but also more noticeably was the mainspring strength started to drop right. and that was a real sort of wake up sort of point really because up until that point to me um, escapements had always been about timekeeping that's been the bragging rights of any watchmaker throughout history is my escapement will keep better time than yours. <laughs> but actually for the first time, I began to look at escapements completely differently. And I now, you know, then began to realize that actually, I mean, our escapement will keep as good a time as any other escapement out there, probably better in the long term than all escapements out there. But here we had an escapement which was beginning to benefit the movement. Right. So, and what I mean by that is that basically it's now taking a weaker and weaker mainspring to achieve the same results. So that meant it was less force going through the pivots, less force going through the winding mechanism. And suddenly I was beginning to realize that, you know, if we can carry on in this same direction, we can actually start to improve on the service intervals of the watches. And surely that's where watchmaking should be going. You know, because over the last sort of, well, 100 years of making wristwatches, the one thing that has never changed is the service interval. It's still stuck at three to five years. So I um, looked at, look, I was looking into this and I thought, well, now that this new design of a skate wheel that I created, I thought, well, perhaps this will enable me to shrink the escapement down because I began to think that um, a lighter wheel, a smaller, lighter wheel will accelerate faster. Right. So the tooth will hit its jewel quicker. Um, and hopefully this will again be more efficient and enable me to reduce mainspring strength. But it is always a bit of a known, known quantity because although the, I was hoping that the tooth may hit the jewel quicker and deliver its impulse um, you know, more smartly, as it were. With a bigger diameter wheel, in effect, what you're getting with a bigger diameter wheel is is more delivery of power. Right. Because your diameter radius is that much greater. Your the 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 distance that the impulse is given over is far greater. So, is whether that would, whether a smaller wheel would actually work, and actually, in effect, it did, and it just transform the watch I mean it's, it really has as I said completely changed the way I look at mechanical watches now and their escapements and um, we've now reduced this mainspring strength even further and um, we have reduced so we started off with a mainspring strength of I think about 15 and a half and now we're down to 11 and a half which in terms of watchmaking is well, light years apart. I mean, that is a staggering improvement in efficiency of the mechanical watch 
And the fact that it's, it's a lighter spring, does that mean that the, the load and the wear on everything is less, therefore, yeah. ultimately, the whole thing's going to last longer? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And service yeah. intervals have extended. And now we've got, we've in, um, increased our service interval to 10 years. But that's based on the old movement. That's based on the Mark I movement with the larger diameter skate wheels. That's based on the um, information that we've compiled over the last 13 years of producing that watch. But in another 10 years, 15 years, once, you know, after this Mark II smaller skate wheel, wheel has been out there, I can see our, us extending that 10 years, that 10 year service interval to maybe 15, maybe 20. Wow. Maybe further. I mean, it's, it really is astonishing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's amazing. And it's transformed the mechanical watch as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's suddenly, it's almost like the automotive industry. I always relate to that. And um, um, cars, you know, 30, 40 years ago were unreliable, different animal to what they are now. Mm -hmm. And um, today cars turn on the, you know, start on the turn of the key and um, need very little maintenance, very little servicing. And really that's what I'm trying to do with the watch, with the mechanical watch. That's brilliant. Mine, you know, I've been brought up in this very focused world of focusing on the mechanism, the watch and its mechanism. And that was all done by George, my experience working with George. And it's always about trying to look for efficiency gains in everything you do in a watch, in all design and so on. And um, yeah, I'm a result of that really. <laughs> Brilliant. So you've um, kind of two questions, which I think might be related, but might also highlight my um, uh, in experience with watches. So all of your watches are rated at um, 18,000 vibrations an hour. Yeah. They're also all manual winds. Yes. Is that a connected thing? So, because um, most watches, um, let's, let's use an ETA movement as, as a, a common uh, everyday watch, yeah. which uh, beats it around 28.8 thousand um, vibrations an hour yeah. and would be automatic. Yes. So no, there's no correlation between automatic and the rate of the right. watch. So you could have an 18, we could in effect create an 18,000 train watch and have it automatic. So automatic watches came in um, as, as mass production really took off in watchmaking. And what they realized was that um, if you can fit more ticks into a second, then it's far easier to attain a rate of timekeeping far quicker. Right. And it meant that you didn't need the highly skilled watchmakers to regulate the watch. You could cut down that sort of area of, you know, the whole process. But uh, the way I look at it is, uh, you know, from my approach to watchmaking is that the fewer ticks you can have per hour, the better. Right. Because it means the fewer times your wheels have rotated, your teeth have ticked, um, your balance has sloshed around in the oil in, the, <laughs> in, its, in its settings and so on. So to me, if you can have, you know, 36,000 train, 28,800, to me an 18,000 train is just a more mechanically efficient way of, of achieving the same thing. So you see, we have time to spend on regulating our watches and building <laughs> our watches. So perhaps that's, that's a reason, but I think 
you know the, the, this sort of ten year service interval which we're now um, which we're now doing with our watches you couldn't do that with a thirty six thousand train watch or a twenty eight thousand eight hundred everything's working too fast grinding that oil mm -hmm. quicker and um, um, as I say it's all about mechanical efficiency that's I was just going to say it's, it's 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 just another step yeah. that you've taken to yeah to make this last longer yeah yeah exactly. and so the, the how come they they are all manual wind is is that is that again another more efficient way of the watch running no i think um probably because i don't know how to design an automatic yet i mean but you also mentioned something um, earlier about um when i first uh, arrived around how you want to bring back more of the design of a pocket watch yeah and uh and they were all Manual, manual wind. wind. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I mean, there's nothing nicer than winding a manual watch. Says me with an automatic watch on my wrist. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, well, I mean, the, the design of my watches does go back to seeing early English pocket watches of two, three, four hundred years years ago. And um, um, what I began to realize when I first started building my first couple of pocket watches trying to show George that I could do this. I was doing some restoration work in the spare time to earn money. And I was doing working on some nice English pocket watches and I sort of realized that, you know, you can go to an auction house, spend anywhere from a hundred pounds up to a couple of thousand pounds and buy a really nice English watch. And with very minimal work, that watch would keep a good as time as, um, as it did when it's first made. Right. two, three, four hundred years ago. Um, and I was thinking, well, why is this? You know, it's um, the modern mechanical watch. They have a lifespan of 15, 20, 25 years. And they can be worn out at that point. Mm -hmm. And, I, well, it realised, I re very quickly realised that is the way that the watches were made. The wristwatch has always been a mass-produced item from its very first infancy. And um, these handmade pocket watches were very similar to the watch that I was trying to make to prove to George that I could make a watch. And uh, I thought that this level of watchmaking was missing from the watch industry. And so at the earliest opportunity I had back in 2001, I designed my very first wristwatch and is built along these lines of these pocket watches, you know, with very right. rigid plates, heavy wheels, heavier wheels than is the norm. And this led to this sort of idea of creating, you know, a wristwatch which was built to these same exacting standards as these pocket watches. Because in theory, these wristwatches of mine should be around for hundreds of years and with minimal attention. That's the idea behind it. And um, yeah, I think we, in, there's no reason why that shouldn't be achieved. That's exciting. It's a cool thought to think that. Mm. Yeah. In a couple hundred years, yeah. someone could be at the auction house yeah. picking up one of these. But, I mean, but if they do need work, it'll be minimal work because they've sure. been built to be very strong and robust. Yeah. And they're all made using traditional materials, nothing crazy about them, no new materials. So it's all replaceable. Um, That's brilliant. Let's talk about your watch collection. Yes. Would you see yourself as a watch collector? I don't know really. Um, are, are you passionate about watches as a whole or is it, 
is it more of a fixation about um, or determination to make a great watch? I think that's the main interest, really. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I do have some vintage pieces, but um, I think the main interest of all the watches I do have is basically technical interest. Okay. So I have, you know, a few Megas and so on, and um, a few Hoyas, but, you know, so I have a Hoya which has a calibre 12 in, which for me is just a really interesting movement and... It's, it's a watch that I experienced when I was uh, in my first job after leaving college and right. I was just impressed with the design of it and so on and the uniqueness of it, very different to any other automatic chrono out there at the time. Um, and then, yes, I think I'm well known for liking Amigas, these early Amigas <laughs> with the beautiful copper movements, copper plated movements. And, and what, uh, what is it about the movement that... It's a design, they're very well designed. You can tell they were designed by watchmakers who cared about the watch and longevity and so on. And they were just really good workhorses. And even today you could buy a 50-year-old, well, even older now, 60-year-old Amiga. And with minimal work, you know, similar to the pocket watches, Mm -hmm. you know, that watch will keep as good a time as when it's first made. And they're just a very robust kind of, I mean, they are mass-produced watches, but kind of, that real pre-mass-produced sure. era. I mean, as I say, they were mass-produced, but not in the, not like a modern mass-produced watch. And yeah. They have a bit more of a leaning in my direction, you know, towards the qualities that a good watch should sort of hold, really. So, yeah, I'm a fan of those. I've got a couple of quartz watches, uh, tuning quartz quartz watches. watches and, <laughs> no, I've got an early mega quartz, which is oh, cool, yeah. a fabulous watch. Yeah, and it, again, that was just an interesting phase of the whole watchmaking industry, which nearly killed itself. Yeah, but um, just a wonderful, um, you know, view as to where people were in those days. And part of the history, they, yeah, part of the history, very valuable. Yeah, and your your daily watch? Yes, Rolex Explorer. So Rolex yes, Explorer. that's a gift Snap. from my wife. Yes, good choice. <laughs> <laughs> but just a great watch, knocking around. Doesn't matter if I bash it into a lathe or yeah. <laughs> or a car or anything. So it's it's no, they're just good everyday watches. Do Do you have one of your own watches? I don't. No, I don't. No, I occasionally wear the Great Britain watch, right? Which um, when it's not on loan for the Great Campaign, but. Um, no, I don't. Too busy making everyone else's. So. <laughs> How long have you been making them for? My watches? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose I started I started 30 years ago. And you still haven't made yourself your own no, watch? No, I started. That's when I started trying to make my first watch, pocket watch, 30 years ago. Um, yeah, I'm still at it. Wow. <laughs> That's funny. And th- th- there is a story behind this um, relics, isn't there? This was, if I'm right... The story behind this one? You you had to sell your you bought a Rolex. Oh, sorry. That you had to sell. Yeah, yeah. So I um, yes, I bought a Rolex when I was a student. Yeah. And um, I was just in love with this watch, and it's a great watch, and I loved it so much that I rarely wore it. And um, then I uh, because I was working at a jewelers in Manchester, and I was able to buy this watch at staff discount is a holy grail of my of, of watches <laughs> for me. And um, then when I began this venture of, you know, going down this venture of making a watch, I quickly ran out of money. So I had to sell everything I had 
including this Rolex. And the biggest regret of my life was not never enjoying it. Right. Never putting it on my wrist and just enjoying it. Mm -hmm. So um, for my 40th, my wife Caroline bought me this watch and is a very nice sort of replacement for that hole that was missing in my collection. So um, that's very cool. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. That's brilliant. Great. It looks good in you as well. Yes. They're great looking watches. <laughs> one of your one of your chaps has one as well. Yes. Yes, er it does. Yes. Early nineties one. Yeah. So, what is next for you, with regards to your your watches? Have you got <laughs> anything in the pipeline? As always, <laughs> <laughs> we've not stopped for thirty years. <laughs> so, um, it's um, yes. So now, so we moved into these new workshops in April of last year. Um, we've got new staff, we've got some more equipment arriving this year. Um, the idea is to uh, try and make a dint in this, you know, we've got a, a, a good order book which we need to deliver on, try and improve on delivery dates. Um, but then there are other watches in the pipeline and um, there's lots of ideas I want to explore and each watch that I've designed is just me enjoying exploring what I want to do really. Cool. So there's, yes, another few watches up here. And- um, How complex, because your, your series four is, is really quite complex. Yeah, it is, that is very complex. <laughs> um, uh, that, how complex do you think, how complex is it, is it in your head? So um, yes, I mean, whether the others will be. No, they're not, I mean, that was, um, it's, for me, it's not about complexity, it's just about, you know, making a particular complication. Right. And enjoying the challenge of trying to make it and make it as mechanically efficient as possible. Um, I'm not a great fan of over-complicated watches because as soon as you get lots of complications on a watch, it reduces a service interval. So that's not okay. good. Yep. It's not good for the owner in the long term. So that's um, sort of always something in the back of my mind, but yeah, we'll see. Watch the space. Right. Obviously, a massive thanks to Roger Smith for allowing me to, to, to invade his workshop, but also to spend so much time with me. It wasn't just a kind of a flying visit. I spent the whole day with him. He actually took me out to, to lunch. And that was a good thing about this conversation was the fact that this was actually the second time that we'd spoken about most of these topics because we'd spent the whole day together. We sat down and we had a, a big old lunch together. And so we'd actually spoken about a lot, a lot of these things already. So this was actually uh, kind of regurgitated stuff. So so good, him, good on him for kind of going along with that, that stuff. If you ever get a chance to meet Roger Smith or if you ever get a chance to see him talk, do go check him out. He's, he, he has a wealth of knowledge and he's so... Uh, keen on sharing that and it's it's quite inspiring to see how much he wants other people to get into watches he's really keen for the watch community to grow he's really keen for for younger people to get into watches because essentially it's it's those people who are going to get fascinated about watches and go off and learn and, and potentially become the next uh, watchmaker to do whatever so he, he's really keen to kind of keep that whole legacy going and despite his kind of status within the watch world he's, he's an absolutely lovely chap 
Guys, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. Do jump over to the YouTube channel and check out the three videos because he does go into more depth um, around the design processes and the struggles that he has with certain things. And also talking about the processes of creating the watches. Uh, he, he shares a lot of information. It's really, really fascinating. The whole trip just felt like a massive crash course in watchmaking. Of course, I don't know enough to actually go off and make a watch, but I, at the end of the trip, I knew so much more than what I did before the trip. And also every time I go back and edit the, the content, I, I seem to pull away kind of more and more knowledge from it all. So it's, it's, it's one of those really deep things that kind of takes a bit of time and he get, does get quite geeky, uh, but it's, it's, it's fascinating and, and he's, he's kind enough to kind of share that net knowledge. Guys, if you do like this podcast, then do hit subscribe. And if you have a chance, please pop over to iTunes and leave a, a review of, of any kind. A nice review would be nice, but uh, of, of any kind. Uh, or, or a review on any podcast thingy that, that you do. If you want to check out more content, jump over to barkandjack.com. We have articles, we have videos, we have other podcasts on there. Um, and if you want to grab one of those native straps, jump over to barkandjack.shop. Check out those native straps. If you're on Instagram, give us a follow at barkandjack. And thanks again for listening. I'll see you guys next time. Take care. The music track is called Takeaway and it is by Chameleon Glade.